We want to move on now to the reading and proclaiming of God's word. And last week, we started our winter series on the book of James, and we looked at trials, and we all go through trials. And one of the things that we need during trials is wisdom. So the question is, how do we get it? How do we get wisdom? Follow along with me as I read from James chapter 1, verses 5 through 18. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we are grateful for your word, this word of truth, and we pray that you would uh, indeed plant it in us and enable it to bear fruit in our lives in your appointed time and season. Thank you for the mercy that you've shown us through the life, death, and resurrection of your son Jesus and coming to dwell in us by your spirit So please be present with us now and enable us to hear and obey your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife Erin and I were not incredibly young when we got married, and so uh, we weren't interested in waiting too long to have kids. What we found out quickly, however, is that getting pregnant wasn't going to be easy for us. In fact, it might be impossible. So we went through various stages of mild to severe interventions to help us conceive. Nothing worked. And this culminated in attempting in vitro fertilization. That's an incredibly invasive, strange, expensive procedure over the course of several months. It does crazy things to a woman's body due to daily injections of various hormones and other drugs. I, of course, was the one giving the shots. I got good at giving shots. After all that, our procedure was not successful. No pregnancy, no viable embryos. It was devastating. And we had decided to do this only once. It was too difficult to go through again. So now it meant grieving and getting on with the marathon of adoption. A few months afterwards, our fertility doctor reached out to us. She said she wanted another chance to help us. She felt she could try a different course of treatment and would even get some of the medication donated. She was confident that she could help us conceive. And this was a Kaiser doctor. She wasn't looking for more customers. She wasn't trying to sell us anything. 
What should we do? We said we would do IVF only once. It's expensive and all-consuming, and it's so hard on a woman's body. And it's hard emotionally if it doesn't work. Do we want to go through that again? Could we justify the time and expense? Were we making an idol of having biological children? Were we refusing, God's, were we refusing to accept God's will? What should we do? The Bible, it has wonderful stories about God giving infertile couples children. Was that for us? Or what about the great doctrine of adoption? Shouldn't we go in that direction? And couldn't thousands of dollars be used to help others in need? But doesn't God give us good things, sometimes in the guise of generous and kind doctors? And what about our heart's desire? Isn't that important? We were going through the trial of infertility. We had faith. What did we need? We needed wisdom. So often in life, particularly in the midst of trials, answers are not obvious. You can't just open the Bible and be told what to do. You need help discerning what to do. And there might not necessarily be a right or wrong answer, maybe only a better or worse, hopeful or fearful, likely or less likely answer. Trials call for wisdom. Now, this passage, and in some sense, the whole book of James is about wisdom. You can define wisdom in lots of different ways. This is how we'll talk about it. Wisdom is the art of applying the appropriate truth for the appropriate situation at the appropriate time. Wisdom is not simply knowledge. It is applied knowledge. It answers the question, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to approach this? When should you fight for yourself at work? Should you take this job that might change your career trajectory? Should your child see a psychiatrist? Should you keep trying to love this person or should you begin protecting yourself from them? How will you pay your bills at the end of the month if you have no job? When we go through trials, we need wisdom. And James says, ask God for it, and he will give it. James gives two important conditions, though. First, you need to ask with a whole heart, and second, you need to ask a wholehearted God. Two points. Ask with a whole heart and ask a wholehearted God. So first, ask with a whole heart. Every human being more than once finds themselves in hard situations, trials, where they don't know what to do, what direction to go in, if any. Our instinct then is to cry out for help, and that's a good instinct. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now that sounds great. That's exactly what we need. But then James gives this huge caveat in verses 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the doubting person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Yikes. This sounds like if we hope to receive wisdom from God during our trials, we have to ask for it while having no doubt whatsoever. In fact, it sounds like any presence of doubt cuts us off from God altogether. He will give us nothing, and we are double-minded and unstable. So who here is free from doubt? You only have 100% faith. No inkling of doubt or questioning in any nook or cranny of your heart and mind, especially in the midst of hard trials where you need God's help and wisdom and you don't know what to do. 
the problem of evil, human origins, infallible and inerrant ancient book, miracles, no doubts, sightings of aliens and Elvis, Costco on a Saturday, still no doubts. This seems like an impossible standard for us. We all have our doubts, Christian or not. And from here, it looks like God won't do anything for me as long as I have my doubts. Even contemplating asking God for help turns into an exercise of self-condemnation. Does this picture seem consistent with the rest of Scripture? Jesus hears the doubting father who cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus saves Peter as he starts sinking into the sea because of his doubt. Jesus comes to Thomas, who says he will not believe Jesus is risen unless he touches his wounds. Jesus shows Thomas his wounds, tells him to put his hand in them. He calls him to belief. There is honest, faith-filled doubting. We are unsure. We don't know. Our faith is weak. We have questions. A bruised reed God will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You have doubts? Tell them to God. Ask him for wisdom to proceed, even with your doubt. Facing and expressing your doubts in a faithful way is usually a great way to strengthen your faith. And oftentimes, when you do this, this is how it's played out in my life, your doubts find resolution. So this kind of doubt is not what James is talking about. The word James uses here for doubt is often elsewhere translated as dispute or disputing. In verse 6, James describes a doubter as one who is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. The picture isn't rough seas. The picture is how the surface of water changes with the wind. I think of a, a helicopter hovering over the water and how the surface is constantly changing and wavering because of the wind. It's shifty. In verse 8, James calls the person double-minded, but the word there actually means double-souled or a divided heart. That's the doubting person James is talking about here. This is a person who asks for help from God and then discards it because they don't like what they hear. This is a person who is embracing the world's wisdom one minute, and the next minute is expecting heavenly wisdom. Years ago, I was meeting with a young woman who didn't attend Grace. She was looking for wisdom. She was a Christian, took the Bible seriously, wanted to know if she should break up with her boyfriend or apply pressure on him to get engaged. She felt disoriented, didn't know what to do, wondered what God's will might be. And for me, something wasn't adding up. So partway through the conversation, I just asked point blank, are you sleeping with this guy? And a little ashamed, she said she was. And I asked her what she thought God thought about that. Was God cool with that? And she knew that he wasn't. But here she was going along with this guy and trying to discern if she should pursue marriage with him. And the first thing I said to her was something like, I don't think you're going to get an answer from God. I don't think you'll be able to hear his wisdom and discern his will in a complicated matter when you're ignoring his wisdom and will in a far more straightforward matter. Listen, friends, don't expect God to give you more direction when you're already not taking the direction he's given you. 
It's hard to hear God when you are willfully disobeying him. It's like asking God for help on a test when you've been cheating in the class, or asking God for sobriety when you're only hanging out with addicts, or asking God to help you be a better parent or spouse when you refuse to spend less time at work, asking God to bring healing and peace to the country when you refuse to be friends of Republicans or Democrats, whoever annoys you more. That's the kind of doubt James is talking about when you will only implement God's wisdom if it conforms to your already decided agenda. That's double-minded person. God isn't in the business of helping us extend our deeply flawed agendas. So appeal to God with the whole undivided heart. This is what James is calling his listeners to throughout the letter. He wants consistency from them, not hypocrisy. He wants their lives to match their faith claims. Don't make a big thing about piety and serving God when you're really serving yourself. So asking from a whole heart means being truly open to God's direction, whatever it may be. Truly desiring God's will be done in your life, whatever it may be. And that's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer all the time. If you trust God, really trust him, then ask for help, assistance, wisdom. He will give it bank on it. Here's a case in point. Wealth or lack thereof. Verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James will bring up wealth and class several times in this short letter. Jesus talked about money all the time. Why is this here? Because wealth, whether you have a lot or nothing, is a trial. Verse 12, the next verse. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Money is a trial through which we can faithfully endure and gain maturity. And what's interesting is that the New Testament talks about money in a way that modern sociologists and economists are just figuring out. Money is about status and how you compare to others. Absolute wealth doesn't really matter. It's how you compare. And this is the real risk of riches or poverty, according to James and Jesus. The poor person rages at their low social status, or they absorb it, which is why James says to them they should boast in their exaltation. God sees them and loves them. God reverses the fortunes of the poor. God exalts the humble, and they are heirs of the kingdom. They need to recognize and internalize their true high status. What does the rich person do? Naturally, They try to consolidate or improve their status, and they live in fear of losing their status. So they need to recognize that everything that gives them worldly status is fading and quickly, and it can actually distract them from the truth. Don't let popularity, power, status go to your head. It will be gone like that. You come into the world with nothing, and you'll leave the world with nothing. This is foundational wisdom for how you approach the trials of money. If you reject this and other clear instructions in God's word about money, then don't expect God to help you go in a harmful direction. If worldly status and reputation is deeply important to you, 
don't ask God to help you get it. If you aren't taking God's wisdom to use your power and wealth sacrificially and generously to bless others and glorify God, then don't expect God to help you get more of it. That's an example of a doubting, double-minded person. Asking God for wisdom from a whole heart to get through the trial of money means starting here with this wisdom, with this teaching. Now, some people might think this is just too complicated. If God wanted us to manage trials better, maybe he should give us different trials or less difficult ones. And that's the mindset that James addresses next in verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God does not set us up to fail. God is not trying to trip us up. He is wholehearted toward us, which is why we need to be wholehearted toward him. So we ask for wisdom from a wholehearted perspective, truly and open, desiring God's will, and we ask a wholehearted God. Second point, ask a wholehearted God. Look at verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. God is wholehearted. He is not shifty or shady, like the double-minded person or the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. God is absolutely dependable and reliable. Only good things come from him. So don't blame him for the difficulties of your trials or the failures within your trials. And the most extreme example of this is verse 13, a person assuming that God is leading them into temptation. God uses trials to strengthen and mature us like we saw last week. But the point of temptation is to get you to fail and sin. God is not interested in that. God is not hostile toward you. Temptation comes in the way that we respond to trials. A trial can be an occasion for our disordered desires to actually pursue something that's wrong and harmful. We bear responsibility for how we respond to trials. We are to face them with faith rather than letting our inflated desires get the better of us. What did Adam say to God after eating the forbidden fruit in Genesis 3? The woman you put here. The woman you gave me, she gave me fruit, and I ate. It's your fault, God. And I've said things like that before to God as well. If you wanted me to do better, you'd give me different circumstances. That's a deeply deficient and offensive view of God. We can't ask him for wisdom while we're shaking our fist at him. Some of us here are shaking our fist at God these days. For a few of us, we're really angry at God and blame him for our situations. The spouse that's not a good fit for us. The career that's wrong. The chances we were never given. The things done to us when we were young. Most of us, though, are more subtle in our fist shaking. We don't necessarily think God is hostile, just distant and not interested. 
not paying attention. The fact that we're facing this trial means that God doesn't care that much. He was out to lunch. And if God's not going to do his job well, then I'm going to do whatever I want, whatever I feel like. What's the point in asking God for wisdom when he is inscrutable and undependable? Finally, still others of us come at it from a different angle. God, you made me with these desires. You made me this way. So I don't have a choice. But scripture is clear. We always have a choice. We are not prisoners to our appetites. Don't diminish your humanity that way and define yourself by your desires. How might you be shaking your fist at God right now? Listen, God is not interested in setting us up for failure. If God calls us to something, then he gives us the capability of doing it or at least moving toward that ideal. Look at verse 5 again. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. God is not angry or annoyed that we need help and wisdom, that we don't know all the answers. He is present and available to us to get us through every trial in our lives. He's trying to teach us to depend on him, to trust him even with our greatest trial, death. Look at verse 18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. God does not abandon us to our trials and desires. He gave us new life by the gospel. He doesn't do that in vain. God finishes what he starts. Expect good things from God. Every good and every perfect gift comes from him, our heavenly father. He is not shifty or shady. He is not indifferent. He is not absent. He is not hostile. When you're going through a trial and need wisdom from God, ask this wholehearted God for help, for wisdom. He will provide it. Now, a sensitive and thoughtful listener right now is saying, Bob, you haven't really solved any problems for me. Because there are probably parts, uh, parts of me, my heart, my affections, that still love the world and embrace its ways. I might have agendas I don't even know about, and I'm probably angry at God for something, shaking my fist at him in some way. And if that's what you're saying right now, then you're talking like a good Calvinist. You're right. All of us love the world more than God, sometimes, in some ways. All of us can blame God for our own sin, like Adam did. So how can we do this if we're being realistic about our sin. We should take our sin very seriously, but we should take God's grace more seriously. The only way to ask a wholehearted God for wisdom from a whole undivided heart for ourselves is to ask in repentance. We ask for wisdom in a trial, but we also acknowledge we might be seeing the trial or God completely wrong. Our direction might not be good. We confess the sin we've contributed and our sinful desires. For example, we want reconciliation with, the, with this friend of ours, but we have to admit we also kind of want them to feel bad for hurting us. We want wisdom to help our kids behave well for their own good, but we have to admit we also want to make our lives easier. Is focusing on their behavior about them or about me? Preachers should know this tension very well. My job is to bring God's word to you in a way that is comprehensible and applicable to your lives. 
Every week I preach, I have to go through the same pattern. I want to preach a good and powerful sermon. Help me, God, to preach a good and powerful sermon. Give me insight into the text. Give me insight into your people. I'm asking you for wisdom. But am I asking for myself? I want to be well thought of. I want to be successful. I want the reputation of being a good preacher. Am I asking for wisdom for the right reasons? What should I do? All I can do is confess and repent of seeking my own status and reputation and still leave the request for wisdom standing. God, your people need to be fed your word. You put me in this position. You could have gotten a better pastor to do this. My name's on the schedule to do it. How much do I want my glory versus how much do I want God's glory? I don't know. I have to point out my sin and acknowledge his calling, and I have to move forward in trusting myself into God's hands. This is all we can do with all of our trials. Be as honest as we can. Repent of whatever we can. Confront our deficient views of God and turn from our deficient desires the best we can. Then we humbly move forward in faith, trusting God to guide us. Why should we do that? Again, because of verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that, he should be a kind, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God is not neutral. He has skin in the game, namely his son, Jesus Christ. The way God can bring us new life is only by his son, Jesus, dying and coming back to life. Bringing us forth by the word of truth is the costliest thing God could ever do. Jesus will not die in vain. God will not abandon his creatures. And he certainly won't let your imperfect faith and imperfect desires keep him from accomplishing his will in you. The father plants his word, his son, in us. He desires good fruit from our new lives, and that comes about as we follow his wisdom. But wisdom isn't simply information conveyed to us. Wisdom is a person, Jesus Christ, who remains steadfast during the greatest trials. The way James talks about wisdom is the way Jesus and the rest of the apostles talk about the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul equates the Holy Spirit with wisdom, with the mind of Christ. When we ask for wisdom... We are asking for the mind of Christ, access through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We are asking for God to be present in our actions and choices, to accomplish his will in us, which is why sometimes when we ask for wisdom, we don't receive a direct answer. And when we don't receive a direct answer, God is saying something to us like this. I am renewing your mind, sanctifying you, maturing you. Use the tools and gifts I've given you. Do your best. Move forward trusting in me. I am with you. This is what makes Christianity so different from some vague spirituality. I read this morning that psychic, fortune teller, tarot card reading, medium business is booming. Yelp said that interest in the supernatural readings category more than doubled in April. April, right? Well, you can imagine why. A global pandemic... And all this uncertainty is causing a lot of people to want to know what to do, what to expect. People want wisdom. The psychics interviewed said it was all kinds of people come to them, CEOs, unemployed, 
up and down the scale, more people than ever before. And it's easier for many to go to a psychic before going to a psychologist or a doctor or a pastor. We want information. We want to know what to do. We want to get a handle and some control over our circumstances. God's wisdom is better than that. It starts with what God has done for us, turning himself inside out to save us. He dwells in us and puts his name and glory on the line for us. We are not his clients. He is not neutral or indifferent. So asking God for wisdom doesn't guarantee success or getting the right answer. It guarantees his presence and help to remain steadfast under trials, that he'll use them for our good. So ask God for wisdom from a whole heart, and ask a wholehearted God. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that you promise to answer us when we ask you for help, when we ask you for wisdom. We are grateful that you give us your spirit abundantly. Help us now to live and walk led by your spirit, trusting in your wisdom, in your word, in your truth. Help us to be open to your will, your direction. Help us to turn from our self-centered agendas. Help us to repent of those and to trust you. Please accomplish your will in us and make us faithful witnesses to your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.